I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Well, we have a president these days, unlike Lyndon Johnson, who really doesn't care about the dignity of, frankly, anybody. Go back to where you came from. It's ugly. And to many Americans in 2019, it's shocking to hear a president say this, especially about members of Congress. After all, we are a nation of immigrants. But though myth is much more soothing, history often shows something other than our preferred belief. As our guest today, senior editor of the Washington Post, Mark Fisher, writes, go-home rhetoric is as American as immigration itself. He says that Donald Trump's raw assertion of nativist language is consistent with the nation's oscillating attitudes toward immigration, end of quote. Well, it might make us feel a lot better about ourselves if, if it could be shown that Donald Trump was alone and unique in his emotional disregard for new Americans or, and preference for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. But history shows us that, as the title of his Washington Post article says, there is a long history of rejecting different Americans. Mark Fisher is a senior editor of the Washington Post. He reports and writes on a wide range of topics as he says about most anything. <laughs> He's been the Washington Post's enterprise editor, local columnist, and Berlin bureau chief. And he's covered politics, education, pop culture, and much else in three decades on the Metro-style national and foreign desks. Mark Fisher, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Great to be with you. When you use the word oscillating, it appears that jumping between welcoming immigrants and pulling up the welcome mat has a bipartisan history. It may surprise listeners that the much-revered, clearly conservative to right-wing hero Ronald Reagan's final speech was a love letter to immigrants. He said, anybody from any corner of the world can come to America to live and become an American. We draw our people, our strength from every country and from every corner of the world. And he said, you can go to live in France, but you cannot become a Frenchman. You can go to live in Germany or Turkey or Japan, but you cannot become a German, a Turk, or a Japanese. But anyone from any corner of Earth can come to live in America and become an American. This is Ronald Reagan, no raving liberal. So, so Mark Fisher, when it comes to immigration, who would you say is the more typically Republican, Trump or Reagan? Well, if you go uh, back through the sweep of history, you'd have to say that uh, Reagan is uh, more typical in his attitude toward immigration and immigrants. Uh, Republicans, uh, even even Richard Nixon, uh, put a tremendous emphasis on uh, encouraging immigration, on celebrating uh, new citizens. Uh, so this uh, and his campaigns were perhaps the first um, to 
focus on what we would now call identity uh, politics. Uh, He had separate organizations that uh, he set up uh, in the 1968 and 72 campaigns uh, for everything from Irish Americans for Nixon to Hungarian Americans to African Americans at the time. uh, They weren't called that, but uh, any number of these sort of subgroups. And... um, so that that's really more the Republican tradition, uh, but obviously there have been these waves of antipathy toward the other, toward immigrants, toward uh, people of darker complexion uh, throughout our history, and uh, both Democrats and Republicans uh, have uh, kind of fallen down that rabbit hole from time to time in mm. history. Um, but many of the most uh, virulent anti-immigrant uh, campaigns and candidates uh, have come from the fringes have come from third parties, uh, such as the Know Nothings and uh-huh. uh, some of the other groups that uh, we looked at uh, over the last couple centuries. And we will talk about the, the Know Nothings as we go along in this discussion. And all of us, of, of course, unless we're of indigenous stock, all of us are immigrants or children or grandchildren of immigrants. Trump supporters defend their position, insisting legal immigrants are fine, and they do try to separate yeah, and, and, and convince people, well, if you want to come here legally, it's okay. But they put up tremendous blocks to even applying for legal assignment. Uh, and uh, to the best of my understanding, when my grandparents came over as children in the great wave of the late 19th century, there weren't any strict standards of legality or not. But the sentiment against Eastern Europeans, like my ancestors and many others, were clearly and vociferously not welcome. As you write, there's hardly any ethnic or racial group in the country that hasn't been told to go back to where they came from. In terms of literature, what have we heard from from these groups that have been told, go back to where you came from? Well, this has uh, been a theme in much of American immigrant literature uh, for well more than a century. Um, and in fact, going back even to the middle of the 19th century when the uh, the, the, the other, the group that was uh, most um, sort of uh, attacked uh, by those who were already here were the Irish yes. and the Italians. And yes. in fact, uh, although uh, today we think of uh, Irish and Italians as white people, they were uh, very much derided during the 1840s and 50s in that period uh, as uh, something uh, something darker. As uh, almost uh, they were actually called black, uh, which is hard oh, to right. imagine, obviously uh, based on their uh, complexion, um, but. <laughs> This this kind of uh, darkening of the other was something that was shot through American history, and uh, we saw this in everything from the diaries of the earliest uh, immigrants from Italy and Ireland uh, to novels and memoirs uh, that continued to uh, be published uh, later in the 19th century into the 20th century. Uh, there are uh, stories of uh, immigrants, uh, whether they be uh, Jewish or Irish or Italian or German, uh, talking about uh, the ways in which they were not welcome to the United States, uh, even as uh, many of those same stories celebrate America as this great melting pot. Uh, but uh, part of that melting process was uh, very often a very traumatic uh, kind of experience where people were uh, excluded 
excluded from jobs, excluded from certain neighborhoods. Uh, so that kind of uh, uh, simultaneous resistance and welcoming of mm. comers has really been a consistent theme. That's amazing. And, and my, my dad, who uh, grew up in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which was basically nothing but immigrants from largely Eastern Europe, he remembers seeing signs saying, Irish need not apply. Uh, you know, sure. it, was, it was really open there. This was in the Boston area. And on his famous 2015 campaign launch, Donald Trump came down that golden escalator. And as we all remember, he talked about Mexicans as rapists and murderers and criminals. Uh, Tell us, please, about the the tradition of somehow believing that controlling immigration would greatly reduce crime and blaming the other for crime. Yeah, again, this is something that goes back uh, at least to the 1840s, perhaps earlier, uh, and we saw uh, riots in places like New York and other big cities around the country uh, that were uh, often the product of uh, uh, unemployment or poor treatment of workers, particularly immigrant workers. Uh, those riots uh, obviously became uh, evidence for those who wanted to turn against the immigrants, who yeah. saw them as bringing crime, just as, excuse me, as, as uh, Trump puts it. Uh, and and this is, uh, has been a, a nativist theme uh, going way back to um, the, the early mid uh, 19th century, and, and you know, I, part of this was religious bias. Uh, the, a lot of the newcomers oh, yeah. from Europe in that period were Catholic, coming into what was at that point an overwhelmingly Protestant country. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it was uh, based on race. Uh, there was a tremendous antipathy toward Asians when they were arriving, oh, yeah. uh, in part to build uh, the railroad across the American continent uh, later on in the, in the 19th century. Uh, and, of course, uh, the, the racial animus was uh, always there against uh, blacks, whether they be freedmen or uh, or slaves. Uh, and, and we saw this in the reaction to Reconstruction uh, in the beginnings of Jim Crow. So this kind of... Uh, tension between being an immigrant nation and wanting uh, to push back against those who are seen as sources of the discord um, in the economy and in the society, um, you know, there's this, it's a very easy thing to fall back on this idea that I'm, you know, we're sick and tired of these damn immigrants. Uh, they need to go back where they came from. Uh, it, it's a populist kind of sloganeering mm. that uh, has been and very effective politically uh, time and again. And certainly you can't, no white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, property-owning male has ever committed any crimes. Obviously, they're only committed by those other, which it's bizarre that anybody, you know, could, could subscribe to that. It's just, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. But you got to blame somebody. You can't look inside, I guess, you know, look in the mirror. And you, your article refers to... Uh, in history, unflattering descriptions of Germans, Russian, Polish, Italian, and Irish. What was said of these particular groups of immigrants, you know, the, the way of defining them as, as being separate and less than? Well, they were seen as um, illiterate, and in some cases they were. They were seen as uh, coarse and um, you know, un- uh, impossible to socialize, um, and and that was uh, obviously a, uh, uh, a stretch, given that um, the yearning to 
assimilate into American society was perhaps the most powerful force that united all these different immigrant groups uh, from the very beginnings all the way uh, in, well into uh, the 20th century. And um, but but there was really a very similar kind of attack that was made against uh, all of these immigrant groups, uh, which was that they were somehow uh, less civilized, somehow less capable, um, and yet uh, at every turn, American enterprises needed yeah. the uh, influx of labor. And so uh, most immigrant groups do start out in more menial kinds of jobs and work their way up. Uh, this is uh, uh, evident uh, in the argument today where the Trump administration is pushing uh, to restrict immigration to much more accomplished kinds of people, people bringing special skills, technical skills, uh, uh, technology skills into this country. That has been a trend in recent decades where uh, a premium has been placed on people who are already skilled and can bring us uh, a kind of an economic edge that we might uh, otherwise lack if we relied on our own people. So that tension has also been uh, very much a factor in American immigration policy from the beginning all the way through to today, and the Trump administration is trying to uh, make hay of that. And, and it's uh, some another place of conflict between the Trump administration and many Republicans yes. uh, because they have uh, traditionally been a party that welcomes immigrants uh, that is the party of big business that, that needs and craves an influx of labor. labor. Uh, and so there's a real rift now between the Chamber of Commerce and the Trump administration over uh, these efforts to make it difficult to get that labor supply moving. That is, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, a neighbor of mine, a, a Republican, a staunch Republican, uh, who was a fan of uh, John McCain, actually, uh, he, he, he said that, yeah, he kind of likes, you know, immigrant labor. You don't have to pay them as much. They work much cheaper, you know, and if they're not legal, all the better. It's great for uh, typical Republican uh, business people. So I can imagine that tension there, I mean, and the Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has never exactly been a bunch of liberals, shall we say. <laughs> if, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Mark Fisher, a senior editor at the Washington Post, who has written a piece called There's a Long History of Rejecting Different Americans, the old uh, Just Go Back Home. And Many of us are, of course, familiar with at least some of the Statue of Liberty's welcoming message to immigrants, the words of Emma Lazarus' classic poem. Just briefly, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. And there's a lot more to it, obviously. Is there irony in the historic context when that statue was erected in 1903? What was going on then in terms of immigration and the attitudes toward it? Well, the country was, in 1903, in the midst of probably its biggest wave of immigration ever. And uh, Emma Lazarus wrote that poem back in 1883 at the, at the, toward the beginning of that giant wave of immigration. Uh, and so here's this enormously welcoming message. Uh, by the time I was growing up in the 1960s, uh, that Emma Lazarus poem was uh, something that we were required to memorize and sing in elementary 
elementary school. Oh. Uh, mm. So, uh, you know, there's this this kind of uh, yin-yang, uh, there's a wave <laughs> upon wave of anti-immigrant uh, attitudes uh, that are then replaced by pro-immigrant attitudes, and the cycle repeats over and over. So in 1903, we're in the midst of one of those anti-immigrant waves, and the progressives, Teddy Roosevelt's progressive party, um, was, although liberal by today's standards on many policy issues, it was uh, very much a populist party and therefore had an anti-immigration aspect to it as well. And so uh, shot through American politics at that time was the idea that we are being inundated, that uh, we cannot uh, absorb full, this enormous right. <laughs> number of people at that point, primarily from Eastern Europe and Russia, uh, and uh, that these people were somehow, again, lesser. Uh, and yet that is happening at the very same time as at least in a more uh, elite intellectual uh, circle in America, there is this embrace of immigration and this idea of America as this shining uh, right. torch uh, that, that welcomes people, uh, the Statue of Liberty being a big symbol of that. But uh, but that, that meaning of the Statue of Liberty is something that we pay lip service to mm. in certain periods of our history, and at other points we just kind of ignore uh, its central message because we're caught up in this anti-immigration wave. Oh, my. And I, it makes me think about uh, my own kind of theory of history. When I was going to uh, elementary school, we were taught progress was a straight line. Things consistently get better. I think history moves in many different directions simultaneously. And it sounds like this was happening back then. It was moving one way and the other way at the very same time. And talking about history, you write of something of which I had not heard, the American Colonization Society, which began in 1817. What was that about, and how may it have actually bolstered the institution of slavery, the American Colonization Society? Yeah, the American Colonization Society was a uh, an effort that ran for several decades in the early nineteenth early nineteenth century, uh, beginning back in about eighteen seventeen. It was started by a bunch of white preachers and some politicians, including James Madison, the uh, uh, author of much of the the Constitution, um, who uh, and the idea was that we have this uh, growing population of freed slaves and other free blacks, uh, and that uh, and, and so these white preachers and politicians, some of whom were abolitionists, uh, deeply opposed to slavery, uh, yet they did not like the idea of having this growing black population in the United States. And so they decided that they would uh, create a uh, essentially grassroots group to urge and help uh, free blacks move to West Africa, uh, sort of a back-where-you-came-from kind of approach. And um, it was not a strictly anti immigrant or anti-other group in as much as uh, these were primarily uh, anti-slavery people. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, looking back on that period, a number of historians have uh, pointed to the American Colonization Society as uh, a kind of organization that was based in a sense of white supremacy, uh, the idea being that uh, these black people would never find a 
productive place in the United States or that uh, mm. the white people didn't want them here. Uh, so uh, it was uh, in some ways a precursor to some of the anti-immigrant movements that we saw later on. In other ways, it was a precursor to the broader abolitionist movement that helped bring about the end of slavery. And evangelicals in the North and the South helped uh, fan the flames that contributed to the uh, war against Southern independence, known as the Civil War. Uh, your article, uh, along the lines we were just speaking of, your article quotes William Darity. I think this is a good quote, a public policy professor at Duke University. He said, with regard to uh, you know, sending blacks back to Africa. The paradox, of course, he says, with respect to black people who are descendants of person who were, persons who were enslaved in the United States, is that you're telling people to go back to where they came from after you forcefully transported them here. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just, it's so uh, hypocritical. It's amazing, really. Now, wh- one of my favorites, uh, presidents through the years, uh, has, was Franklin Roosevelt. And he warned us very specifically about fear itself. And as as we've seen all too often, manipulation of fear is a highly effective political tool. What about the fear expressed by many working Americans about immigrants taking their jobs? That was the justification for the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. It's an understandable fear, but... Uh, what about its accuracy? I mean, it's been played up, and fear is just, uh, Trump is, is expert at, at manipulating and whipping up fear. But what about this Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882? How, how accurate uh, was it, and is it? <laughs> Well, this was uh, one of many cases in our history where uh, immigrants are blamed for either difficulty in finding jobs or for low pay rates or for uh, difficulty finding housing in uh, certain parts of the country. Uh, So it's kind of an easy way to channel blame and uh, find uh, an outgroup that uh, uh, can be uh, kind of ostracized for the impact that they've had on our society. But uh, the fact through almost all of our history is that uh, waves of immigration bring about tremendous economic expansion. And so we've seen in periods of great uh, immigration, whether it be the late 19th century, the early 20th century, or 1960s, uh, all our examples uh, into the 70s as well, uh, are examples of times when our economy expanded enormously largely because American enterprises had to expand to feed and clothe and house the newcomers. Uh, And uh, so you get this sort of happy cycle going of expansion and growth uh, that is driven by immigration. And uh, any number of economists have made the case through the years that uh, the success of the United States as a society and as an an economy has been primarily driven by these refreshing waves of uh, immigration, of uh, new markets essentially arriving on our shores. Uh, Obviously, there are periods when uh, the influx uh, is uh, less controlled and the economic impacts are more mixed, and certainly we've seen in recent decades uh, the impact of immigration from uh, the south of our border, yes. uh, where on the one hand uh, there have been economic expansions in any number of areas, uh, enormous numbers of uh, homes being built to uh, accommodate to the newcomers, uh, but there have also been uh, some depressing impact yeah. on wages in certain areas, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and there's always a kind of unsettling uh, feeling that people 
have in communities where there's been a large influx of newcomers uh, because there there are periods of overcrowding and periods where the schools, the classrooms are overcrowded, uh, where uh, bu- local and state budgets are uh, really uh, stretched to accommodate uh, the newcomers. So there's always going to be that kind of tension. Um, and there's often a mismatch between the kind of people who are arriving, the skills that they have, the kinds of jobs that are appropriate for them, and the available jobs. So uh, this kind of uh, tension takes years to work out, and in the interim, we see these surges of anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, California in the 1980s is a good example, uh, the the, tremendous pushback against uh, arriving waves of Mexicans there. Um, And uh, and yet over time, uh, that sort of works itself out, but in the interim, you do get uh, the election of uh, anti-immigrant politicians. Uh, yes, we certainly uh, have seen that. And one thing I wonder about is a lot of the people who support Trump say that, oh, I have nothing against immigrants. They just have to come here legally. Legal immigrants are fine. It's the illegal ones that are the problem. What's the reality behind that? I mean, I talked a little bit before about uh, how they're changing the rules to make it virtually impossible to even begin the legal process of applying for asylum. What, what about that, that argument that one hears fairly often? Well, there's a certain element of truth to it in that uh, there has been a struggle since really the beginnings of uh, of the country to control the flow of immigrants to determine where they're coming from, what kinds of skills they're bringing to the country. Uh, and there have been any number of kinds of uh, systems that uh, we've created through the years, whether it be quotas uh, or limits of various kinds uh, based on geography or based on, on labor skills um, or based on family structure, uh, which have had each have had their own controversies and uh, some have been more discriminatory than others others. Um, but the intent in many cases was to kind of match the influx of immigrants to the society's needs uh, for labor and for yeah. population. And uh, I don't think anyone could look at that record and say that it, we've been terribly successful at uh, sort of that, that kind of social engineering that lies behind yeah. those different policies that have been tried. Um, but the fact is that uh, controlled legal immigration is much easier for a society to absorb than uncontrolled um you know, uh, survival sure. of the fittest kind of uh, <laughs> illegal immigration that uh, that we see during some of these surges and the the numbers that we have coming over the border from Mexico in recent months and years mm-hmm. uh, are uh, very much an example of, of the kinds of peaks that we've had of illegal immigration throughout our history. And those are the kinds of surges that bring about the greatest political backlash. Uh, and so there is a cost to having uh, this sort of open border, um, and that's why we've seen really bipartisan efforts through the years to gain control over uh, our borders. And um, you know, we, we happen to be stuck in in a cycle where, uh, even though both parties and really almost across the ideological spectrum, there's agreement that we need to have uh, a better uh, policy and better control that uh, over both the illegal immigrants who are here, as well as those who are trying to get here. Uh, Yet, nonetheless, there's been no progress toward uh, developing any policy that would would be workable and politically palatable. Uh, And that's because it's 
very much to the advantage of uh, both parties to uh, kind of uh, work on behalf of the extremes in their bases and uh, to demagogue the issue in one fashion or another. Mm -hmm. So there's this tension between uh, the political advantage of appearing to be uh, avidly pro or anti-immigrant versus the more practical advantage to the country of uh, meeting somewhere in the middle. So meeting somewhere in the middle, I, I, I thinking might mean dealing with the, the issue of legality versus illegality. I, I think a lot of people who come here from you know Guatemala and places like that would like to apply for asylum, but there are barriers thrown up against uh, being a, a legal immigrant. I mean, physical barriers, for example. I, I think that's part of the problem, but it's a, it's a more difficult one to uh, to address. Your thoughts on that? Well, sure. Physical barriers have been part of the discussion for a long time. Um, uh, Trump's wall is hardly a novel concept. In fact, yeah. we've had walls uh, on our southern border and for various stretches of the border for decades. Um, some of them work well, some of them don't. Um, the border with Mexico is a very uh, complex uh, piece of geography and a piece of uh, economics because of the uh, various cities along that border that are essentially twin or sister cities right. uh, that are really one economy and, and that rely on uh, easy movement of uh, people and goods across the border. Um, so it's a very complex issue, one that uh, a simple wall uh, has never been able to solve, uh, but Obviously, physical barriers are very tempting, and with the history of walls uh, to keep people in or out of societies is a uh, uh, is one that uh, goes back throughout human history, uh, yeah. going back to the walled cities of um, the medieval period, uh, all the way up to the the walls of uh, Northern Ireland and uh, Berlin and uh, Israel and the West Bank. Uh -huh. So uh, this is um, a mechanism that. Uh, societies have used, uh, generally uh, with a great deal of controversy, generally with uh, limited uh, efficacy, uh, but it's always tempting and sometimes efficient. And it's it's so simple to just, you know, think, oh, a wall will keep them out, but, you know, actually addressing the problem of the legal process is, is much more complicated. Well, as H.L. Mencken, I believe it was, said that uh, to every complex problem there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. I think this is one of those. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Mark Fisher, a senior editor of The Washington Post, about uh, the, an article he's written saying there's a long history of rejecting different Americans. It goes back and forth. And talk about history. The term nativism, I asked my daughter what nativism meant, and actually she seemed to understand. Who were the so-called know-nothings? How did they get that moniker? Did they originate the term nativism? What about that? No, I think the, the term nativism goes back uh, well before that, but the uh, the know-nothings were uh, a very interesting and important early third party in American history. Uh, you would think that know-nothings would be a, a, a slur, a term that uh, right. perhaps foisted upon this group, but actually they, uh, to some extent, embraced the uh, name. Uh, so it was, uh, the idea was 
that these were uh, Protestant Americans who wanted to get rid of the German and Irish immigrants who had been pouring into the country. Uh, as we've discussed, this was yet another wave in which people who were already here felt that those uh, who were coming in were stealing their jobs, that they were uh, there was something un-American about them, they were not patriotic, they were perhaps subversive, uh, that they were even diseased, they're bringing illness right. with them from overseas. And so there was this attempt to get them to leave, go back to your country. Uh, and that kind of uh, effort uh, started back in the 1840s or so, and uh, during a, a tremendous wave of immigration from Germany, Ireland, mm-hmm. somewhat from Italy, uh, and the foreign-born population more than doubled in about six years, um, starting in about wow. 1848. And part of this was a religious uh, confrontation. The, most of the newcomers were Catholic, and they were entering a country that was almost entirely pre- Protestant. Uh, and so this new political party emerged, um, known generally as the Know Nothings, but their official name was the American Party. And they uh, proposed to put some of these newcomers back on ships and send them right back where they came from. Uh, and although they never came close to uh, winning a presidency, uh, the know-nothings did win some governorships in the 1850s. Uh, and uh, basically, this was, uh, it was, this was a period of culture wars, as yeah. we would call it today. Uh, and the idea was uh, with, uh, these people were not assimilating. We needed to uh, get them out of here because they were changing the nature of our schools and overcrowding our cities and and all of the things that are typically thrown at uh, newcomers. So again, know nothing. What is that? Why were they proud of that? What does that mean? Ah, yes. So they these were uh, people who uh, were often derided by uh, the intellectuals of the time, the elites of the time, yeah. as people who were anti-immigration, anti-immigrant, because they were ignorant themselves. Uh, that uh, you know, just as we've seen recent presidents, right. uh, Barack Obama got in trouble for uh, yeah. comments about. Uh, immigrants, or I'm sorry, about evangelicals. Uh, Hillary Clinton got in trouble for her notion of the deplorables Uh, and so on. And so that kind of uh, dismissive attitude from the elites toward those who would be uh, critical of immigrants and who derided them as people who didn't know anything. They were Uh know-nothings. And just as we've seen Trump supporters embrace the label of deplorables, the anti-immigrant group back in the 1840s embraced the idea of themselves as know-nothings. So they would say, uh-huh. okay, sure, we don't know anything, but we do know we're Americans and we want these newcomers out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. And this whole, you know, anti-intellectualism, anti, I mean, anti-elitism, uh, it's its interesting that, you know, not knowing anything is just as valuable as being highly educated. I don't happen to believe that, but it seems to be a part of what we're talking about today. And another, uh, uh, you know, myth that we've had is the myth of equal justice for all. It's very comforting, but there are so many examples of injustice specifically against recent immigrants having different uh, uh, level of justice. Sacco and Vanzetti come to mind. How was their southern Italian background, how did that affect their charges and trial. They were 
charged with uh, uh, burglary and murder, I believe, in uh, about 1917, something like that. But how did how was their ethnicity? How did that affect justice in their case? Do you think? Well, you know, the allegation that has been made for many years has been that they were singled out, that their the notoriety of the case uh, came about because they were other. They were uh, Italians at the time were uh, seen as uh, dark and swarthy and uh, somehow not white, and uh, so there came out of that ground uh, swell of. Uh, antipathy and discrimination, uh, the idea that uh, there was something uh, evil about uh, these guys or about uh, the group writ large. And we've seen waves of that kind of uh, almost uh, celebrity status for criminals who come from whatever group is is out of favor uh, and uh, allegations that prosecutors or police or politicians have uh, aimed their firepower at uh, criminals who are uh, of a particular group, um, just as we're seeing today a tremendous emphasis on in in right-wing circles and in right-wing media on uh, criminals who happen to be uh, Mexican or Hispanic. Uh, So that that is a uh, theme that runs through American history. Mm. It should be said, of course, that uh, the justice system has at various points also been a great defender of immigrants and has uh, protected them against the mob in many ways. So um, it's, again, the kind of historical phenomenon that has uh, had this tension back and forth uh, through the decades, depending in part on the state of the economy and mm. of employment in the country. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it goes many different directions at once. And then there's the Germans. What about the strategy of ramping up hatred toward Germans by the Wilson administration? How were German immigrants portrayed, and why, and, and what happened to them in the uh, ramping up to the First World War? Well, we saw this really with both world wars, uh, where Germans were um, considered, uh, Germans at that point uh, in the early 20th century and and again in the mid-20th century, uh, were one of the two or three largest uh, ethnic groups in the country and still had something of an ethnic identity. Today, Germans have kind of been washed into a a larger um, white uh, identity in the United States. at the time, Germans had a very distinct identity, and a great number still spoke their native language um, and lived in uh, German-heavy communities. Right. So uh, there, it was an identifiable target group, and as tensions with Germany increased uh, before World War One and again before World War Two, there was a backlash against uh, German-Americans in the form of uh, rhetoric from politicians, um, discrimination in in jobs and, and that kind of thing. But uh, in both cases, before World War One and before World War Two, the antipathy toward Germans was not as strong as uh, towards some other uh, groups in society, and particularly before World War Two, the contrast between oh, how yeah. Japanese Americans were treated and how German Americans were treated sure. uh, was really quite stark. So the That's Japanese true. were, were uh, rounded up on the West Coast mm-hmm. uh, and put in uh, camps, uh, internment camps, uh, supposedly for their own protection, uh, but uh, quite evidently because of the racial difference, uh, there was no 
such roundup of Germans, although many German Americans did feel that they were singled out for uh, bad treatment by officials and by uh, their fellow Americans during that same period. Yeah, there was some mob action against them. And yeah, I, I remember in, I think it was 2003, when, when French fries, because France was against our war against Iraq, they became uh, freedom fries. Uh, now, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that what we now call French toast was originally German toast, but they changed it. And as I understand it, one of the reasons for the successful passage of prohibition was pervasive anti-German sentiment during the Great War, the First World War. There was a widespread and heated demand for, under uh, Wilson, for 100% Americanism, a sometimes violent rejection of people with hyphenated names. There was a real notice of hyphenated names. What was the role of whipped-up nativism in getting us into the First World War, do you think? Well, I think in uh, both uh, World War One and World War II, uh, there was a great resistance against American involvement in what was seen by many people as someone else's war, yes. a war that uh, really uh, had no cause to cross the ocean. And, um, you know, there, the sort of isolationism had been uh, an important uh, driving force in American politics in the periods before both of those wars. Uh, and so for and both Presidents Wilson and FDR uh, were reluctant to take America into war. And so before World War One, Wilson really held back for quite some time, just as FDR would uh, 30 years later. And um, in both cases, we were sort of pulled in by forces beyond our control, uh, by uh, aggressive actions on the part of the Germans, um, and by a growing sense that uh, the United States, uh, both for domestic reasons and because of uh, our obligations to our allies, uh, needed to uh, to get involved. Um, but it was really a reluctant entrance in, in both cases, and in both cases, uh, I think um, there were forces that were for American involvement that oh, yeah. took advantage of uh, a kind of readiness among Ameri many Americans to uh, to lash out against uh, the German Americans and others uh, who other other groups in the country that could be associated with the enemy, and uh, that really is something we've seen uh, kind of throughout our history. Um, and, and you know, despite all of the anti-Muslim uh, activity that we saw in the aftermath of 9/11 and then around the Iraq War. War, uh, it, that really paled in comparison to the, the uh, overt anti-German or anti-Japanese yep. um, sentiment and action that we saw before the world wars. Yeah, it was really whipped up. The uh, they, they used it, the Creel Commission, uh, public relations, propaganda to, to make people really hate the Germans and see them as, as less than. It was very, very useful. I mean, yes, he, Wilson originally... Was, was skeptical about joining it, but then really got into it, and anybody who disagreed could be uh, thrown in jail. Now, back to, uh, well, back to the future. <laughs> you refer to the Republicans' brief attempt at self-reflection after Barack Obama's two presidential victories. As you say, their study urged the party to transform itself into a welcoming home for blacks, Latinos, and Asian Americans. Now, perhaps many of the 2016, uh, there were, I think, or maybe 17, 2016 Republicans, they embraced that. 
the the idea of transforming into a welcoming home. But Trump, of course, did not. He vociferously rejected what he called political correctness. And, of course, that resonated widely, who won a startling victory. Was this a turning point, a burst of new energy for the nativists, the wave of harsh, yet now widespread anti-immigrant behavior? And I, I think it's interesting that, you know, they reacted to the idea that maybe they should be more welcoming. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's um, it, it's one of those chicken or egg questions that uh, where it's really hard to parse out whether the nativist uh, sentiment was already there and Trump simply took advantage of it and uh, made political hay from it, or whether he really provided uh, the impetus for uh, a, an explosive growth in that sentiment uh, and, and its uh, usability as a uh, as a political identifying. Uh, uh, or sort of uh, as a source of political energy. Um, what Trump did, I think uh, you have to look back at Trump's life going back to the 1970s, which was really the formative time for his uh, political uh, identity and his political um, uh, methods. And, and that uh, in that time, he was very much taken by the anti-immigrant uh, sentiment in New York where he lived. Um, he was a big listener to uh, radio talk shows, the early uh, political right-wing shows that were very much uh, on uh, riding the tide of anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, again, at that time, against Mexicans and immigration from south of the border. And so that was key to forming Trump's uh, notion of how to appeal to people, how to be a populist. And so he stuck with that uh, through periods when that sentiment was popular and when it wasn't popular. And by the time 2015 rolled around, uh, he sensed, uh, I think, in a very savvy way that this message would really resonate and that both parties, he felt, uh, had gone soft on immigration. And so there really wasn't a uh, a hardcore anti-immigration voice coming from either the Democrats yeah. or the Republicans. So he saw this big, wide opening. Mm -hmm. uh, he had seen uh, in the Tea Party and before that in the the Ross Perot phenomenon, the roots of that kind of uh, ready audience of people who were looking for someone to blame for the country's economic transformation and uh, the, the sort of gutting of jobs in much of the middle of the country. Uh, and so uh, Donald Trump is always about the uh, scapegoats, and he loved the idea that there was someone you could blame who would uh, mm -hmm. be kind of a good target for all that anger. Uh, and so he hit upon uh, the this uh, notion of, of latching on to anti-immigrant sentiment. And um, it really flew in the face of where the Republican Party was at that point heading. And uh, mm. coming out of the Bush years, there was a tremendous effort to uh, turn the party into something other than an all-white enclave uh, and to reach out especially to Latinos. Uh, the party had pumped a lot of money into creating grassroots groups across the country uh, that were designed to bring Latinos into the fold, uh, into the Republican fold, and uh, and, and Trump just uh, slammed the brakes on that and said, no, nope, we're not doing that. And um, by sort of capturing the party, he captured that set of ideas. 
Yeah, it does seem that it's an interesting, uh, you know, looking at the numbers, there, there's, you know, one approach of uh, bringing people in and and building the party that way, whereas the other approach that, that Trump obviously took was to go for a minority, but a powerful and solid uh, minority that, that is certainly appears to be blatantly racist. And I, I have to think that, you know, if a lot of the immigrants these days were coming from, say, Scandinavia, which why would they do that? Uh, it, it, we wouldn't we wouldn't see it. But Guatemala in particular, uh, Trump is threatening Guatemala and immigrants from that country with economic sanctions, including taxing money that the people here in America send home. Guatemalan Americans, if they send money home, putting a new tax in. There was just an article about that. Of course, they come here in large members, numbers, thanks to the long-standing American support for rather ugly authoritarian militaristic regimes. You cite a scholar explaining that we are here because you were there. Most Americans, it seems, are greatly bothered. Yeah, this is history moving in different directions at the same time. Greatly bothered by the treatment of children that we've seen in cages. I would hope that it's a small minority of Americans who support such harsh measures. Is racist nativism actually prevalent in 2019, or is it just a large enough minority that uh, looking at the electoral votes in the states might simply be a, a tactic for uh, getting Trump reelected? Well, I, I think Trump uh, has made clear, and certainly a number of his uh, top aides have told us, that he believes that uh, that set of issues, the border issue, the wall, uh, the, uh, the overwhelming influx of uh, illegal immigrants, uh, is what got him elected in 2016, and he believes will get him reelected next year. And so you're going to see him in his classic fashion doubling down and, and just hitting that note harder and harder uh, with perhaps more extreme policies uh, and, and uh, proposals. And uh, that obviously is not a, uh, a strategy that is aimed at expanding his base, but rather at solidifying his base. And uh, it does seem to have the desired effect. And if you look at the opinion surveys uh, on these kinds of questions, there is a clear majority of Americans who do not see uh, immigration as one of the most important problems in the country and who do not see uh, Trump's solutions as being the ones that uh, make the most sense. Uh, but as you mentioned, that's not the way elections are won and lost for the presidency. They're won and lost uh, by the Electoral College vote. And so in the states that Trump needs to repeat his 2016 success, um, these are states where these issues do seem to hit home, where the economy is struggling, where uh, people do blame the other for the loss of jobs and the loss of sense of community and, and so on. And so uh, it does seem to be a pretty savvy strategy. Uh, and so what he has traditionally had to do is to control the backlash just enough so mm. that he doesn't lose votes uh, while uh, keeping the rhetoric as virulent as possible uh, to uh, get his base revved up about this. Uh, it's it's a strategy that has worked for others in the past. Uh, Richard Nixon used it in 1968. Uh, um, to some extent, uh, Ronald Reagan used it, even though Ronald Reagan was in the end uh, quite a supporter of, of immigration. Um, but uh, 
We've seen it in state elections around the country year after year. So there are there is a method to the madness, and yes. um, it would be hard to argue that uh, this is definitely going to backfire in any way. No, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to be. It seems to just uh, solidify. He doesn't care, I guess, about being called a racist. And you know, even the very reluctant uh, mainstream media news organizations have declared that he is, in fact, a racist. I mean, and when he says, "Go back to where you come from," that's it. Certainly strikes me as as racist. But you know, I, it surprises me how openly racist he can be. And get away with it. And as you're right, it's a strategy. It's a strategy. It's a, it's a solid minority that, that he thinks may take him there. And they may. And mixing the slogans of, you know, making America great again uh, and, you know, putting America first, uh, that, that revs up the, uh, the, the, the sentiment for nativism, for, you know, this is America is for us right now. And what about that birtherism that he used in, in 2016? He must have known that was nonsense, but uh, he, he certainly uh, used it. You know, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes with Trump what he genuinely believes. Um, <laughs> he, is, um, he takes great pride in his willingness to uh, use any kind of uh, uh, distortion or sometimes you know, outright falsehood um, for, for his own gain. I mean, he's all about winning the moment, winning yes. a particular battle, and he'll use whatever it takes to get there. Mm-hmm. So birtherism was a tool for him. Uh, and when I've asked him about that in some of our interviews, um, he will never concede that, uh, that he's made something up or that he's adopted a position that he doesn't really believe in. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, he will concede that uh, he's been on both sides of a particular issue. Uh, abortion is a good example right. of one that uh, he was uh, deeply opposed to abortion for many years and then flipped on the issue. Uh, and he has conceded that uh, he did that for political purposes. So is he did he do that with birtherism? Uh, I, I think, you know, he gets this kind of impish grin on his face yeah. when you confront him with uh, issues where he has uh, deployed uh, inaccurate or just straight-out lies. Um for political gain, and uh, he's kind of proud of doing that. He likes to call it truthful hyperbole, not always clear that it's terribly truthful. Um, But I think birtherism was a case where he just took it, saw that it was working, and decided to ride with it in the way that he does with so many of his marketing initiatives. Well, lucky you. You've apparently had the pleasure of meeting the man. I have not. Lucky you. My goodness. And I haven't heard any Democrats talk about addressing the reasons why so many people from Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador and places like that come here. I I would think, you know, logically anyway, but what does logic have to do with it? You know, if we stop supporting such, such, uh, you know, dictatorial authoritarian governments there, geez, maybe people uh, would, would uh, have less reason to come here and address, you know, allowing the drug gangs to exist. But I haven't heard any Democrats talk about that. Have you? Well, um, yes. I mean, both the Democrats and Republicans have, um, in recent years, uh, pushed hard for addressing the economic and political uh, forces that are driving Central Americans to our country, uh, addressing those issues 
in those home countries rather than after yes. the immigrants have come here. And um, until Trump came along, it was very much Republican policy to um, provide economic support as well as political support to uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and other uh, countries that are the source of many of the uh, newcomers uh, in an effort to tamp down on some of the gang warfare and drug trafficking and uh, economic uh, ails that um, are, are driving people out of those countries. So that's something that both Democrats and Republicans have pushed for in recent years. It all came uh, pretty much to a crashing halt yeah. uh, when Trump came along. Yeah. Uh, Democrats still at least pay lip service to that idea. Uh, but uh, they've been, uh, you know, obviously Pretty powerless to do anything about it. Now, I, I wonder if there is anything that, that can be done about this. I, you know, I, do you think that most Americans see how, you know, Trump says that anybody who disagrees with him is clearly unpatriotic? Uh, do, do, do you think a lot of Americans are seeing how really un-American that is? Does it matter? Do you think? Is there any kind of movement on that? I think there's um, a, a very strong consensus um, in the country that uh, Trump's anti-other rhetoric, whether it be uh, against uh, racial groups or against immigrants, um, th- that that rhetoric is destructive and in some ways uh, outside the American tradition. And uh, we see even among Trump supporters a certain level of discomfort with the way the president talks about those kinds of issues. So. It obviously works for him as far as, uh, you know, at his rallies where the real hard yeah. core of his base uh, come out to, to be entertained. Um, and so yes. he sees this as something that uh, revs people up and, and gets them out to the polls. Um, but I think it's pretty clear from survey data, from interviews, uh, that uh, even many people who voted for him last time are uncomfortable with the way he talks about these things um, and would rather that he not do it. Does that mean they'll vote against him? No. No, um, but it does mean that they're open to uh, an alternative, um, and they just feel like uh, they haven't been given one that uh, yeah. that speaks to their uh, issues and frustrations. Ah, uh, interesting. I, I feel like you know a lot of people that voted for Trump were actually attracted to Bernie Sanders last time because they spoke. But we don't have time to get into that right now. Interesting stuff. Thank you so much for being with us. If people want to read more of your uh, articles, your work, Washington Post, right? WashingtonPost.com or WashingtonPost.com slash Fisher. Uh, either one of those will do it. Um, or uh, my book, Trump Revealed, Biography of Donald Trump, is uh, ah. available as well. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Hey, girls. Yes? What is it? What's up, Amber? I love America, but I don't like detention centers. Me either. They're inhumane. A living nightmare. And saying I don't like them is me exercising my free speech. But sometimes, when you use that free speech to express an opinion people don't like, they respond with racism. Been there. Happens all the time. And when I went on Twitter and tweeted, close the detention centers, do you know what someone replied? A well-thought-out statement that respectfully reflected their opinion? Nope. They sang the same old song we've heard a thousand times before. Go back to your country. Nobody's stopping ya. Go back to your country. Go back to Africa. And that was confusing because I'm not from Africa and 
Africa is not a country. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, the literal opposite of Africa. Uh-huh. Once I tweeted that I thought getting rid of all college debt was a good idea. It's a great idea. It is, even though I never went to college and don't care. And you know how someone replied? With a question about how paying for the educations of millions would affect our economy? Nope. They replied... Go back to your country. I'm afraid of things that I don't know. I replied, hey, that's racist, plus I'm Cuban. (laughs) And they replied, actually calling me racist is racist, when we all know that's not not a thing. thing. (laughs) Well, you know what happened to me? What? I was minding my own business, just speaking another language, and someone yelled... Go back to your country. You're stupid, you're ugly, you're dumb. Go back to your country. Wherever it is you're from. <laughs>